Amen. Please be seated. If you are an elementary-aged person, human, you can uh, follow the, uh, the, the kid in orange. Both of those actually are in orange. They're, they're ours. And uh, you will go to the right back there and find some wonderful Sunday school awesomeness. I don't know who's teaching back there, but they are fantastic. They're memorizing scripture back there. Um, it's incredible. They, they just, they've, they've been memorizing uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 about them being a new creation. And it's incredible. Kids, you can get the word in them and it sticks in them their whole lives. That's fantastic. So, good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys all get gold stars for coming even though it rained. So, um, an old uh, missionary once told me that the Lord didn't make us out of sugar. So, it's okay if it's raining, you can still get out in it. So, I'm glad that you uh, braved the, the wind and the storms to be here today. As Trev was talking about, we're going to be continuing in, in Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 9 today, kind of in the middle section of it, really talking about the new covenant. So we're going to take a bit of a, not a detour, but we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to spend some time looking at the new covenant, what the realities of the new covenant are, because the book of Hebrews talks a lot about it, and doesn't necessarily go into a lot of detail, because the, the writer of the Hebrews is assuming that the people who are reading it or listening to it, it's probably a sermon, but that that are reading this have a really deep understanding of the Old Testament or of the law. And for us who didn't haven't grown up with that, if we don't have a really solid understanding of the Old Covenant, of the law, what all that means, who was Moses, all this stuff, it's hard for us to kind of find our, our headspace as we're reading through Hebrews. It's kind of like when you read Revelation, the 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 assumption is that you've read the 65 books in front of it. And so people will read Revelation and be like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, well, have you read the other 65 books in front of it? No, we'll start there, start in Genesis, read through, and then it will make at least slightly more sense than it did before. So let's jump into Hebrews chapter 9. And before I do that, let's spend a moment praying, asking the Lord to help us to understand what he wants to teach us today. Father, we, we come to you just as, as your people created to worship you. And, you know, as the song said, Lord, that there's nothing that stands between us now. And then we're going to talk about that today. The barriers that you have removed and the reality that we have access to the presence of God. It is unbelievable, Father, that we can come to you and, and that you don't reject us, that you receive us as your sons and as your daughters that you love us, that you equip us, that you help us, that you fill us with your spirit to live Christ's life through us. It just is mind-boggling. So we come to you this morning to ask for your help. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to help us understand what you want to teach us today through your word. We come to you, we kneel before you as we open your word. It is not just some book, it is the living word of God. And it is, it's incredible because it's your word. And so we, we come to you expectantly this morning. Each one of us comes to you in great need. We just so deeply need you, Lord. We need you to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to rebuke us where we are going astray and to turn us around in the right direction, to encourage us, to empower us, and to help us to continue to run with you, Lord Jesus, like Jeremiah, and you looked at him and you told him that you will teach him to run with the horses, would you indeed help us to do that very thing, to do what is impossible in our own power, and to live lives as members of the new covenant under which we, we now have salvation. So we thank you, Jesus, 
and we lift all this time up to you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews 9. We're going to be in verse 15 and through 22, and then hopefully, Lord willing, we'll finish up the, uh, the chapter next week. And uh, remember when we said we're going to go through Hebrews at a faster pace? So um, this is faster than we went through John, so that's better. We would, John, we would get bogged down like two verses and spend four weeks there. So here we're, we're at least moving it um, in a bit of a bigger clip. But we'll be in verse, uh, chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews. If, you, if you've got a Bible, open it up or turn it on, whatever you've got to do there. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat there that is yours to take. And it's uh, meant, meant to be given away. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take that one and give it to them. So, Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant is not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, now let's walk back through this and try to figure out what it all means. So that first phrase there, and it says, for this reason. Anytime you see a therefore or for this reason, if you haven't read up above it, you're going to want to understand what the author just said. So as Treb took at last week, in, 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 uh, in verse 11, it says, when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already there. Uh, this idea of uh, he is now this mediator of this new covenant, and he went through this, uh, this tabernacle and all this. Um, we're going to look at in, here in a little bit, not quite yet, but this, these pictures of the, the tabernacle and of the temple and what that looked like. And uh, we, when he went, went in there, the idea that the high priest could enter the holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that Jesus kind of entered into this holy place, but he didn't do it by the means of blood of goats and calves, which is what the human high priest had to do. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. And the significance of that is that by doing this, they have obtained an eternal redemption. So the word eternal, keep that in there because you're going to see it again. So it says the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Meaning that the high priest could then go in and be in the holy of holies, in the place where the ark of God was, in the presence of God, where the mercy seat of God was, and not be destroyed. But, it says, if that works for a human, a normal guy, sinful human, high priest, how much more then will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God? You see the Trinity working here, by the way. Christ... The Spirit and the Father offering himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. So this idea that Christ, by his own blood, entered the holy place and made, as we're going to get into in a second here, atonement for us there. But it can also, what the law could not do, as Treb looked at last week, was the law cannot cleanse our consciences, right? If you've ever had a conscience that is burdened by your own sin, there is no fix for that but Jesus. You can drown it out with all manner of things, and millions of people spend lots of money doing just that, whether it's drugs or there's a long list of things that people use to drown out the weight of a conscience burdened by our own sin, but only Christ can do that. And the point of that 
is that so that we can serve the living God. It's not just to save us. Jesus doesn't just save us and be like, yeah, you're saved, now go about being dumb. No, now you're saved, now get to work. Now, when it says, for this reason, so because of all of that, Christ is now the mediator of the new covenant. So Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. This idea of the people are down there, God is up on the mountain, Moses is up on the mountain, he's mediating between God and the people. He's one of the people separate from them, mediating this covenant, right? Jesus is now this mediator between us and holy God. And so he says, uh, there's a, he's a mediator of a new covenant of those who are called. Well, who are those? Well, one of the best ways to interpret a book of the Bible is to use that book of the Bible. It's like you go back to Hebrews 3.1. Who are these called? He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. And then he's going to go back and basically explain what he's talking about. What does it mean that he is the apostle and high priest whom we confess? But therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are one of the called. So when he says of those who are called, if you place your faith in Jesus, that's you. So that those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance. So Jesus because he obtained eternal redemption, because his blood is eternal. Because remember, look back at chapter 7, that he has this life that cannot be extinguished, this um, indestructible life. Jesus is himself eternal. So his sacrifice was eternal in nature. His blood has, uh, is able to go uh, to take care of the sins that were committed under the first covenant. And we now receive an eternal inheritance. You hear the word eternal life a lot for Christians talking about what does that mean? It means life that doesn't end. It means an inheritance that doesn't end. It means a redemption that doesn't end. Why? Because it's provided by a spirit who doesn't end, by a savior who doesn't end, by a God who doesn't end. God is eternal. And so his redemption is eternal, meaning doesn't end. So like if you can think as far out into the future as you can possibly imagine, you're not even getting started for how far our redemption stretches. Because the God who never began and never ends redeems us to himself by his own character. And the character of that redemption is eternal. It's in contrast to the redemption of the old covenant, which was temporary. The atonement, the covering of the sin. Remember, when they sinned, every, they had to go and sacrifice something else. Every year they had the day of atonement. And it kind of covered the whole year. But they had to keep going back. Jesus didn't. So he goes about it to explain this, uh, and this is an illustration of a will. So when you have a will, right, somebody, somebody has a will, and then when that person dies, the will becomes active, right? And whatever they said, so it's to say, okay, well, when I die, these people get this stuff. And so when they die, those people get that stuff. That's how a will works. It doesn't, it's not active while they're alive, like, which has been the cause of some dubious activity in human affairs. So the reality that it says that it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Like, it was, this was necessary 2,000 years ago, necessary today. You've got to have a, a death certificate, right? So, but it says, because a will is in force only when somebody's died. That's what a will does. Last will and testament. Whoa, we're reading the New Testament. And this back part here is the Old Testament. What? Oh my gosh, words have meaning. Look at this. So we've got this thing where you have a last will and testament. I, I, this is my will. This is what I want done. So you have a new testament, 
a new covenant, who wrote the new covenant? God did. Who wrote the old one? God did. He literally wrote it on a tablet and gave it to Moses. And then Moses wrote it all down. And we're going to jump back in in just a second here into Exodus 24 and look at that process. But this is God's testament, his will, the new covenant that he's giving us. So he's saying this new covenant that we're now under, who Christ is the mediator of, it doesn't take effect until that person is dead. In verse 18, this is why the, even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. The covenant with Abraham was put into effect with blood. If you remember back when God makes his covenant with Abraham, which was this unilateral covenant, meaning God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this. That's it. And Abraham believed him and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then uh, Abraham makes these, uh, these, he takes these animals and, and, and literally splits them in half and lays one side and the other, and God's presence goes through between the animals to seal this covenant. Then we're going to have in uh, Exodus, you have this people who are redeemed people, brought out of slavery, and in Exodus 24, which we're not going to read all of, I encourage you to do it for your homework, Exodus is a wonderful book. They're all wonderful, but Exodus is uh, particularly fun. It's cool stuff in there. But in Exodus 24... For reference, this is all going to sound real familiar because the author of Hebrews just said it. So he says, this is in verse 1, Then he called to Moses and says, Come up to the Lord, you Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. You're to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. So who gets to be close to, to the Lord? Moses alone. He's the mediator. The others must not come near. And the people cannot come up with them. So you've got the people and then the leaders and then Moses is with God. When Moses went up and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. I mean, that's a long conversation, right? These people were very patient. I mean, we would get, nowadays, our, our, uh, Moses would get like four paragraphs in, and someone would be like, hey, I need, to, I need to check Twitter. And then, so they responded with one voice. And what do they say? They say, everything the Lord has said we will do. Like, if you read, this is, he's just gone through these, these other previous things, talking about what the... The, uh, the uh, I don't know the legal terms, but the, the, the statutes or whatever of this, this covenant is. And they said, we'll do it. And so then Moses wrote everything down. So he got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the tribes, and he sent a young Israelite man. They offered burnt offerings. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. This is what he's talking about in Hebrews. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Okay, so what has happened here? Israelites, slaves in Egypt, God redeems them out of there, brings them through, brings them through the water, Puts him in the land. Of course, the, the point was that they were going to come, make this covenant with God, and then it's, it's a two-week walk into the promised land. woo That's not what happens. There's uh, some other stuff in there. They stuck there for 40 years. Longer story. They make this covenant with God. They make a covenant with him. If you go and you look in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, you have these, there's this list of blessings. If you obey the law, these are your blessings. They're really good. Like you're, 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 everybody will have lots of babies, uh, there'll be lots of food. Your enemies won't squash you. It's going to rain when it's supposed to rain. And then there's a list of curses if they don't obey the law. That's a much longer list. So they agree to this thing. They say, we will obey the Lord. They don't. And God, being faithful, 
brings the curses that he promised if they failed to obey the law. Sounds harsh? They agreed to it. I don't know. Accountability and human responsibility is part of the deal. So they agreed to this covenant, and they were not able to do it. Obviously, I wouldn't either. And so the curses from the law came. That's the old covenant. The old covenant is God made an agreement with the people of Israel. I will do this if you do that. If you do this, I will do this. You don't do that, you get cursed. You do these things, you'll be blessed. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curses. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. They said, we'll take it. And then they left it. So this brings us up to the new covenant where he says, what Moses had done is that some animals had to die. He kills these goats and these, uh, these cows and he sprinkles the blood on the tabernacle and all these things. And it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we're going to dive into now these, some things that come out from this. And one of them is that the reality of sin. We're going to look at a, a verse in, in Leviticus into why the atonement had to be, why there was blood involved. Why is that in there? And we're going to look at the reality of what this new covenant brings. So the new covenant shows us the reality of sin. It shows us the, uh, that we have righteousness now by faith as apart from the works of the law. And now that there is a radically better covenant, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul is, is uh, juxtaposing the old and the new covenant. So let's jump in real quick into Leviticus 17. You've never read the book of Leviticus. I encourage you to read it. It's really the... But before you read it, you need to know that it is a book about God's holiness. So it's a wonderful book, but it is the very detailed instructions of the people. Like Leviticus 16 is about the Day of Atonement. How do we do that? And 17 is about why they're not supposed to eat blood. Okay, if you know a, a Jew, that kosher means they drain the blood out of everything. Why do they do that? So this is Leviticus 17.10. He says, uh, any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from the people. You won't be able to be a part of the community. That seems really harsh. Why? Verse 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood. If you take the blood out of something, it dies. Like that's standard. They didn't have to be like hematologists to understand that back then. Something, all the blood is gone, the life is gone. So the life of the creature is in the blood. And look at this. And I have given it, the life of the creature, to you. Why? To make atonement. For who? For yourselves where? On the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Why is this important? Romans explains something to us in chapter 6 about sin, where he says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, I guess we've always been in a time, I'm not a big person of saying like, this is the worst it's ever been because it's not. Like we don't have barbarian invaders coming in and sacking our building. So it can get way worse, just FYI. If you're in a camp of this is the worst it's ever been, yeah, no, it can get far worse than the way it is now. But sin is sin. And we are in a time where our society believes that sin is like a societal construct. It's not. 
sin is a reality that has to be dealt with. And the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. It means that when sin works, it gets paid in death. So when people sin, something has to die. Why? Because sin gets paid in death. It's serious. So under the old covenant, God said, fine, your sin will not be covered by the life of an animal. So there's this question of, uh, there's a theory of the nonviolent atonement, that God really didn't plan for Jesus to be crucified, but things got out of hand, and uh, people kind of went crazy and crucified Jesus. I mean, that's, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrong with that. The main one being that who is God in this equation? Uh, is he really God or is he not God? And if Jesus didn't mean to get crucified, if that wasn't the plan all along, then most of the Bible is a lie and God is not in control and we're all kind of host. So, but the idea of why isn't there like a vegan Jesus, right? Why, how come we can't have like salvation without all the blood and the sacrifice? And have you ever seen like the passion? It's really scary and it's brutal. Why? Why does it have to be blood? He says blood all the time. He sings songs about the blood of Jesus and it's like this chipper song. None can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Like, why do we talk about that? Because the blood is the life. You see that? And it's an exchange. In atonement, there is an exchange of life. My life is broken by sin, so I will exchange the life of this animal to cover my sin. Because God understands the seriousness of sin. And we don't. And so we view sin very low, like it's sort of something that happens, but not really. That we don't view it as something that actually has a penalty, but it does. And so the, we have this concept of Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross. By the way, not to say vegan Jesus, I don't want to make anybody feel about being vegans because if you know a vegan and ask them why do they not eat meat, it's because they have compassion for an animal which is a good thing. Okay, so um, so all of us omnivores, whatever, just have compassion on the vegans. Um, and, you know, if you're out to lunch with a vegan and they're not a believer, order a vegan meal for them and eat it with them. Might show them that you care about them. So anyway, total, total sidetrack. The idea of, <laughs> the idea of blood. Why is there not a, uh, a, a, an atonement that happens without blood? And Leviticus gives us the reason. And this gives us the reason, for without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because of sin, something has to die. There is no way around that. God is the author of life. Life is far more precious to him than it is to us. God knows that that little animal, that little lamb, that little sheep, that little goat, it has a life that God created. And he gave that life over because the people were more important than the goat. Do you see? So it wasn't just that people were mean and, and wanted to slaughter everything and have a barbecue. That is the wrong view of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is there's a people who, and if you read the Psalms, David is in deep distress because of his own sin. Deep distress. And he needs something to cover it. And God gave them a, a law where they could kill a goat or a sheep or an animal and atone for their sin by exchanging the life of that animal for their own sin. So the analogy to Jesus is that he exchanged his life once for all for all of us. And it had to happen because we're sinful and because sin has a consequence and that consequence is always death. Okay, 
So, one, the reality of sin. I don't want to leave you there. That's kind of a downer. So, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3 real quick. About under this new covenant, what does it mean? What does it mean that we're now under a new covenant? We looked at how the old covenant happened, right? You had Moses, he's standing there, he's on the mountain, and he's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this. And they say, yeah, we're going to do it. We agree. High fives for everybody. Sacrifice the stuff. And then, of course, while Moses is up there for 40 days, you get Exodus 32, where before he even comes down, they're sacrificing to a golden calf. They're a hot mess. So they're just like the rest of us. And this idea of, well, how do we then enter into this new covenant? Well, that's what Romans is about. So we have in Romans chapter 3, talking about the reality that, that, that no one is righteous and that everyone is, is, will be held accountable to God. Uh, this is Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Talk about things no one wants to talk about anymore. Like you get on a news station, like, hey, do you have anything you want to say? You're like, yeah, the whole world will be held accountable to God. Not going to be a lot of cheers for that one. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin, that the old covenant showed us how sinful we were because it was impossible for us to keep it. But now, in verse 321, there's like 75 sermons in these next six verses. We're just going to read them. It says, But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, apart from the old covenant has been made known to the law, to which the law and the prophets testified. So the Old Testament told about this new covenant that was coming, which Treb talked about in, in, uh, a couple weeks ago. Verse 22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be, the just, as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So how do we enter this new covenant according to Romans? By faith. We enter into this new covenant with God by faith. We believe that what he says is true. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and uh, took on the sins of the world, died on a cross to pay for those sins, was buried, rose from the dead, conquering death, and, and ascended into heaven, and that he is coming again. And if you understand that you have sin and that you need a Savior, and you turn to God and you say, Lord, save me from my sin, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he died on a cross and rose from the dead. I believe that. I trust you to save me. Then you, you become a believer and you enter into a covenant with God, which seems really easy, right? Seems like, well, that seems too easy. Well, guess what? It's not easy. It was really hard for that to happen. Look at the cost of the new covenant. Look at the cost. It cost Jesus his life. The one life that was truly, truly good, that was truly innocent, that was truly perfect. Have you ever met someone who's just wonderful and you're like, gosh, this person is amazing? Or a little child who's just seems innocent and so full of life and you're like, this person is like, they are the ideal of who we should be as humans. That person pales in comparison to the wonderful glory of who Jesus is and that he gave his life for us. 
And we enter this new covenant by faith in him. It is a righteousness that comes through faith. Did you see what Paul said there? Not through the law. It can't come through the law. And the writer of Hebrews is telling his people, there is no way to be righteous through the law. You can't do it. The only way to be holy, to be righteous, is by faith in Jesus. And then we're going to see what he does here in just a second, which is going on to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So there's the reality of sin. There is that we have righteousness by faith. And finally, there's this radically better covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. It's pretty cool that God gave us the Bible to explain all this stuff. We should read it. 2 Corinthians 3. And by read it, I mean like a lot. You're going to have to read it. I had a seminary professor that said uh, the hundredth time he read through Matthew, he felt like he was fighting starting to get it. (laughs) The hundredth time. (laughs) Finally starting to get it. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3. Oh, let's start in. Four, chapter three, verse four. So Paul is going to be uh, juxtaposing. He's this idea that we're the ministers of a new covenant. We're now these ambassadors of this new covenant. And that's kind of the, uh, the thread that he's going with here. He says, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives like The letter is, a, is like a metonymy for the law, the Old Testament. The Spirit gives life. Let's see what the Spirit does here in this passage. Now, if the ministry that brought death, the law, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So when Moses was up ministering, he would, when he would spend time with God, his face would be glowing, like Glow Moses. And he would have to wear a veil because the Israelites would freak out when they saw him. And so, but it faded. The glory of it faded over time. So it says, if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, which is the law, the law was glorious and gave Moses glory as he spent time with the Lord, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So the new covenant brings righteousness. And according to verse 6, the new covenant brings life. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. He says glory a lot. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? He's comparing the old covenant and the new. Now he says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Ministers of the new covenant must be bold. Why? He says, because we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing away at it while the radiance was fading away. But in their minds were made dull. For to, it, uh, to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. He's talking about, and he'll explain more in chapter 4 of this, the veil that is over people as they are coming to the Lord. It must be removed by Christ alone. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. You've never seen that. It's miraculous. Someone who's reading the Bible, like, this is all hogwash. None of this makes any sense. And then the Lord, the Spirit does something in their minds, and they're like, they can see it. They can see the gospel, and they repent of their sins and become saved. It's like, it's the most amazing thing ever. Anyway, I didn't say anyway, because it's just incredible. It's why we do what we do. But this veil is taken away when they turn to the Lord. In verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. Listen to this. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. So the new covenant gives life, 
It gives glory, it gives righteousness, and it gives freedom. Those sound like good things, right? Those are the kind of things that I want. But it says, and we who with unveiled faces, we do not have to veil our face to hide the glory of the Lord. We're all with unveiled faces all reflect what? The Lord's glory. And are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I mean, right? Mind-blowing. This is the new covenant that we're now under. Anyone who has put their faith in Jesus is now under this new covenant. So how do I remember this, right? That we have freedom, and we have intimacy, and we have glory. So you're going to have to forgive me, but I work, I work by weird little uh, things to help me remember. But freedom is like F, and then intimacy, I, and then G is glory. What did Adam and Eve cover themselves with when they were just fig leaves? Okay, so under the new covenant, I'm sorry, it's just stuck in my head. So you can just totally, maybe it works. It works for me that under the new covenant, um, I now have like a new fig. Okay, I have freedom, intimacy, and glory. Freedom is really important. I, um, like there's this, if anybody Spider-Man fan knows that with great power comes what? Your responsibility, thank you. So, but uh, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a book a long time ago, and she says this about freedom. She said, freedom makes a huge requirement of every human being. She's talking about kind of the freedom that we have as a nation, but I'm applying it to this truth because her truth is subservient to the higher truth of the gospel. So, freedom makes a huge requirement of every human being. With freedom comes responsibility. For the person who is unwilling to grow up, the person who does not want to carry his own weight, this is the frightening prospect. Freedom comes with responsibility. Why are there so many believers, beginning in Hebrews, by the way, remember he, he's explaining this stuff about Melchizedek, and then he has to stop and say, hold on a second, you guys need to grow up. Before I can tell you all this, he does it in chapter 5, right? We're about to say much of this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. <laughs> in fact, though by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary principles of God's word over and over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's telling them to grow up. The freedom that we have under the new covenant means this. We must grow up into Christ. You've been given freedom. And if you want that freedom, you need to use the responsibility that comes with it. You are responsible for your own spiritual growth. Not me. I am not responsible for your spiritual growth. You are. And if you're not doing stuff to grow, you're not going to grow. If you stick a plant in a pot and then just put it in the street and you don't give it water and you don't give it plant food, and you don't give it sunlight, what happens to the plant? It dies. Our churches are full of potted plants that were once really pretty, and then nobody took care of them. Responsibility in the Christian life is discipleship. That's what it is. And that looks like something. It looks like following Jesus. That looks like being in the Word. You study it, you read it, you memorize it. It looks like a prayer life. It looks like uh, fellowship with other believers looks like telling people about Jesus. Looks like walking with Jesus. Looks like something. I'm not making this stuff up. That's what Jesus said. We have freedom under this new covenant. We want the glory, but it comes with a freedom 
that we have to be responsible for. So I encourage you, be responsible for your spiritual growth. If you don't know how to do that, Treb and I will teach you. It's what we do. Our elders, Carson, this guy right up here, Tim, this guy right back there, they will, and I don't know, I can't see Austin lights. Austin, these are, we're elders. We will teach you how to walk with Jesus if you don't know how. That's literally why we exist. If you don't know how, guess what? It's your job to do something about it. I don't know what's going on in your heart. You can't just sit there and think, oh, I'm waiting for Brandon to reach out to me. I'm not God. I would be an awful, awful God. I'm just Brandon. I don't know. So if you're struggling and you don't know how to grow, do something about it. Send us an email. Send us a text. Talk to us after the service. Uh, sign up on Realm and send us a message. I don't care. We'll answer you. Go to the website, thevianokc.com. Send us an email. Find out about it. Do it. That's all I can say about that. Fig. Freedom. Second, intimacy. This idea of this veil. If I say the word veil, what do you think about? A wedding. So why does a bride have a veil on her face? You might know. She, she's veiling, and then when does she take the veil off? Yeah. When she comes down this aisle, right? And a lot of times she goes, and the, the dad gives her away. Off comes the veil. And who's she looking at? Her groom, her husband, or just about to be her husband. This idea of I'm removing any barrier to intimacy with you. What stood between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world? A curtain. Can you guys put up those images real quickly we had? Sorry, I didn't give you a lot of warning. It's life. We're good. Top notch guys back there. Yay, okay. Um, so this is the tabernacle. You probably can't read the words, but you can see the shape, right? You've got, uh, this is what they carried around that Trevor was talking about last week, this tabernacle, and they, it was portable. It was a portable worship center. It's like a it's tent. So uh, the walls are about seven and a half feet tall that went around it, made out of uh, um, fabric. And then inside of it was this, uh, uh, you had the altar, and you see there's this progression. There's this gate, and then there's a place where you can hang out, and then there's the altar, and then there's a labor where you would get washed. And then inside of that was the, the holy place where only the priests could go. And inside that was this lampstand and this table and this incense altar. And then there was a veil. And there was this veil. And then behind the veil was the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could enter once a year. So Jesus enters this place, this temple, to bring out his holiness. And then what tore? The veil. So can you go to the next slide? So in between the veil and the people, excuse me, in between the holy place and the people was this cloth, this giant veil. This is a, a, a model of, of Herod's temple, or the, called the second temple. Solomon built a temple after the tabernacle, and then the Babylonians tore it down, and then Herod built this thing, and then the Romans tore it down. The world's good at tearing down the stuff that God's people built. But the idea of this is massive, massive. The temple mount is like an engineering marvel, and this massive structure does not scream Welcome. There's not a big sign that says, hey, everybody, come on in. There are walls after walls after walls. And inside of that blue part is where the Holy of Holies was. And that's the veil that tore when Jesus died. So if the holiness of God is inside that veil, the thing that separates us from fellowship with him is now gone. The veil has been lifted. We have intimacy with him. As we just sang, nothing stands in my way. So we now have intimacy 
with him. J. Vernon McGee said this, there was a place where the high priest of the old order did not dare to linger or make a mistake. If they screwed up in there, they would die. If they touched the ark, they would die. They were terrified. They would put little bells around the bottom of their hem so that if the bell stopped sounding, they could, and they would tie a rope on their ankle because if they screwed up and died, no one could go in there and get them so they could pull them out. Talk about a worship service. Go in there and die, and someone's got to pull you out with a rope. Whew. Anyway, so they dare not linger or make a mistake. And where he only came once a year and always with blood, that place in the true sanctuary is the rightful portion and position of every true child of God, where he loves to linger and where he even makes confession of his sins. We do not have to worry about making a mistake before God or about lingering in his holy presence because we've been given access and intimacy to him in this new covenant. It's amazing. You have intimacy with the Almighty. What are you doing with it? The final thing is the reality that we have this beautiful glory of Jesus. I mean, the words of Paul are mind-blowing. Do you know that you are being made into the image of Jesus? We who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What? Whose glory do we have reflecting off of us? Jesus is whose image am I being transformed into? His. So when you screw up, that's just the Lord taking off some of the dross. That's him reforging you. That is him. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. Actually, Brian right over there. We're talking about how sin makes us dumb. And he was telling me how metal takes. I actually told him I wasn't going to use this metaphor in the sermon, but now I'm going to. When you have a sword, you take it and you, uh, you heat this metal up. But if you heat it up and then you, you quench it in this oil that becomes hard, but it's brittle. And it, can't, it can hold an edge, but it can't flex. And so it has to be reforged. It has to be heated up again and then cooled down in a different way. And so that like this idea of we're talking about losing our tempers. We, the metal loses its temper that we lose our ability to be flexible enough to be useful. So the Lord has to stick us back in the fire. That's what God does with us all the time because he loves us. Because you have intimacy with him and because he wants you to reflect his glory. And that means he is going to polish you as a mirror to take away all the dirt and all the gunk and all the junk that gets in the way of his glory being reflected in your life. But that's going to require you to keep drawing near, which is the whole message of the book of Hebrews. We get the beautiful opportunity to celebrate communion today. <laughs> Talking about, Treb is literally going to say, this is the blood of the new covenant. <laughs> Do not miss it today. This is an opportunity for you to come to the Lord. God designed it into the fabric of our worship to give us a regular opportunity to come to him, to confess our sins, to draw near to him and experience the intimacy and the glory and the freedom of the new covenant. So as we pray I want you to allow the Lord to prepare your heart to take communion with him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for the new covenant that we are now under, that you are the mediator of. Help us live as new covenant people. Help us experience communion with you today as we celebrate this new covenant and as we come to you to commune with you to experience the freedom 
the intimacy and the glory that we have because of your sacrifice. In your risen name we pray. Amen. Amen. I mean, as part of our expression of worship, right, each month we stand up here and we celebrate this table, but often without knowledge and reminding of the background that took place, that this is a table of unity, that it's called to unify all believers um, under the same covenant to remind us what we have been purchased essentially into, what we have agreed upon by faith, what unites us together uh, from believer, or with believers in this room, down the street, across the city, throughout space and time, is this single covenant that we are all under together. And uh, the Bible is very clear. We do not take it lightly. It is something that we should contemplate in our hearts, and we recognize the sacrifice that was made, the costly and deep sacrifice that was made so that we could have those things that would be free to us, the freedom and the intimacy and the glory that Brandon so wonderfully showed us and explored this morning. Well, on the very night that he was betrayed, on the night that Jesus would be handed over, on the night that he would be abandoned by everybody that he loved and cared about, he gathered with his disciples and they took meal. And after that meal, they took the bread, or Jesus took the bread, and he gave thanks. He offered it to the Lord and he said, this is my body broken for you. And after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant sealed in my blood. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This is not a symbolic movement that's just part of our worship experience. It's the very expression of the new covenant that we are under and that we are in. And it is an unbelievable and beautifully mysterious thing. And it's an expression of all that God is for all that we are. This morning we're taking communion by means of intinction, which means uh, that we have two stations in the front and the back. As you come down, you can take a piece of bread and dip it into the cup. We do have uh, gluten-free options available down front. If that is something that you require, uh, just ask and we will serve you in that manner. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward and we're going to pray and share in this meal together. I encourage you to stand as, we can, as you wrap up so that we can continue in worship as a family. Let's pray together. Our servers can come forward. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather in this place, to celebrate the truths, to see the background in which they come from, to tie the biblical pieces and portions together, to be reminded of the beautiful redemptive plan that began in Genesis and continues throughout the New Testament. The fulfillment of the old covenant, the launching of the new covenant, the promise that Jesus is, Lord, that if he sacrificed his life, that this new covenant sealed in his blood gives us freedom. It gives us intimacy and access to your glory. So, Lord, as we celebrate this meal today, may it mean something more. May it be a reminder of something deep and something true and something real. May it be an expression of our heart to a God who gave everything so that we might know him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity this morning. We ask you to move in us and our Savior's redeeming and holy and perfect and beautiful name, we pray. Amen. I invite you to come forward as you feel led, and then remain standing, and we'll close our time in worship together. Amen.